Welcome to the Book Club Girl podcast, where we chat about great books with awesome authors and you, our listeners, ask the questions. I'm Eliza Rosenberry, and on today's episode, we're talking about clothes. And one of the first books where I remember reading about the character's clothing and being sort of fascinated by it, you're going to laugh at me. It was when I used to read the Babysitter's Club books as a kid, because one of the characters, and maybe people are into the TV show now, which I haven't watched yet, but one of the characters, Claudia Kishi, is an artist. And she's always, I just remember Anna Martin describing her clothes in like, she would combine weird articles of clothing and create these zany creative outfits. And I always really admired that as someone who basically just wears all black all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Even as Um, a child, she wore all black, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) (laughs) Even as a child. But yeah, so that's like the first time I remember really reading about clothes and enjoying it very much. So clothes in books. I love this topic. Oh my God, I could go on forever. Wait, who are you? Oh, I'm Tavia Kowalczyk. (laughs) Your co-host talking about clothes and books. Game of Thrones, okay? So (laughs) I was like, I have to read these books before I watch the TV show. Read Game of Thrones and I was like, I cannot read this book because he describes outfits for like paragraphs. He will describe (laughs) not only the women's outfits, but the men's outfits too. Hmm. So I was like, okay, this book is not for me, but if you love clothes and books, read Game of Thrones. (laughs) And then... A book we discussed on the podcast, which has one of the all-time best clothing scenes ever, is when Wallace Simpson gives Lulu her golden dress to get married in, in the golden hour. I will never forget that scene. I remember being like, this is an amazing dress. I want that dress. I loved that. And because they were in her bedroom, right? And she gave it to Lulu and got all dressed up for her wedding. And oh, such a great scene. We love love Beatrice on this podcast. On today's show, a young woman is tapped to be the lead embroiderer on Princess Elizabeth's wedding gown in post-World War II London, leaving a mystifying legacy for her granddaughter decades later. Today, we're discussing the best-selling historical novel, The Gown, and later on the show, we chat with author Jennifer Robeson. And now we present to you, The Gown Abridged, or shall I say, Hemmed. Very good. (laughs) In post-World War II London, young Anne Hughes is one of the top embroiderers in the premier British atelier of Norman Hartnell. When Princess Elizabeth announces her wedding, Hartnell's design is chosen for her gown, and Anne is tapped to be the lead embroiderer for the dress, even creating samples for the princess's approval. Joining her is Miriam Dessen, a talented embroiderer from France and a Holocaust survivor. Soon, Anne and Miriam are not only working shoulder to shoulder on the gown's train, but they also become roommates and dear friends. The gown and their friendship will alter the course of both of their lives in ways they never would have imagined. Decades later, in Toronto, Anne bequeaths three stunning samples of embroidery work to her granddaughter, Heather. Neither Heather nor her mother had ever seen these pieces before. In search of answers to many and new questions about who her subtly secretive grandmother really was, Heather travels to London with only a few old photographs and the embroidery samples to guide her. Lives and coincidences cross in this moving novel that explores issues of family, identity, history, and friendship. What did you think of the gown, Tavia? Oh my gosh. Well, the gown itself is amazing, but the book 
it hit every note for historical fiction. It was like, bing, bing, bing. It just all my little historical fiction lights were going off. She's got the connections between the past and present. She's got, you know, the the friendships. She's got the romance. She's got the research. It's like this little nook and cranny of history. It's all in there. And I just loved it. I completely agree. I loved her depiction of this era, this sort of post-war recovery. There's rationing and how different it was in England than it was, for example, in Canada at the time. One of the characters knows someone in Canada and they exchange letters and it's so different there. And the rationing is, you know, it's not only just for food, it's for clothes and everything. So obviously impacts both her work and her life. I thought that was so interesting and well done. I know. So certain aspects of the story were a little predictable to me, but it didn't even matter. Like I kind of suspected what would happen, but as a reader, I was just like, I don't care. I just want to see how they get there. I'm keeping reading. This is amazing. Please kiss now. It was fantastic. (laughs) It was very well, very well written. And I really, you know, I was pleasantly surprised by the plot and how it unfolded. There were a few moments where I sort of worried that the characters were a little too naive and maybe being taken advantage of or things wouldn't work out. And with the exception of maybe one or two moments where that was the case, you know, overall, it was very, you know, positive and uplifting. It was a lot about what I imagined to be something that people thought a lot about in the sort of immediate post-war era, which was sort of helping other people and sort of operating in good faith, which I felt like was sort of the dominating idea for these characters at this time. Yeah, I, I agree. A big impression. I really loved that one of the main components of this book was about the sort of professionalization of sort of traditionally like women's domestic skills, like embroidery and sewing. Those are things that women would traditionally do for free as like free labor in their homes. And I liked that this sort of broached the way that those skills were being professionalized at the time. And treated as artistry. Yeah. Yeah. Not only just a profession, but also art. Yeah, you're right. So I just have to say that the end, I was totally choked up. I just, the way there's this friendship that happens and I just got so emotional the way the past and the present came together. And I I just found myself like, like sort of holding my breath and choking back a few tears. It was, it was very emotional. Yeah, it was very sweet. And I think the present day plot line ended up working really, really well here. I think it really brought out some of the nuances of the historical plot and some of the scenes in the present day plotline where the character Heather is going back to sort of try and rediscover some things about her grandmother that she didn't know sort of seemed to echo like the author's project of going back and doing all of this research and digging around and trying to excavate some of this stuff that she doesn't know. And, and um, that seems to be like mostly been forgotten. So I really enjoyed the current day plotline as well. Well, we can't wait to talk to Jen Robeson. I'm really, really excited. I know so many people in the Book Club Girl community love this book, and it's such a treat to get to talk with Jen. But first, we're going to do our toast, and we have a really special reason to toast this episode because it's the one-year anniversary of our podcast. Oh, my God, Eliza, a year of talking to each other about books. (laughs) Can you believe it? I mean, good for us. This has been so much fun. I'm shocked we had so many things to say, but we just have so many good books to read. It's been such a joy. Well, here's to another year of fun book discussions with you and with the Book Club Girl community. Cheers. 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 
Quick reminder, we love hearing from you, especially now that we're working from home. Join our Facebook group, The Book Club Girls, where you can stay connected with other book lovers and pose your own questions to authors who appear on our show. You can find us at facebook.com slash groups slash The Book Club Girls. And stay tuned after the show for a short exclusive sample from The Gown audiobook. Today, we're joined by Jennifer Robeson, whose book, The Gown, is out now. Welcome to the Book Club Girl podcast, Jennifer. We are so excited to have you with us. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. So I'm going to dive right in. We had a ton of book club girls, people from our community asking questions about this book. Like You were, were already a hit. So Pamela from the Facebook group wants to know, how did you get the inspiration to write a novel centered around Queen Elizabeth's wedding dress? So it goes back to when I was first trying to come up with an idea for my next book. The previous book was called Goodnight from London. It was set in London during the Second World War. And it ends on VE Day, which for people in Europe was effectively the end of the war. And I wanted to know what it was like to wake up the next day. I really wanted to talk about basically how tough it was to live in England in that period. But I also didn't want it to be a complete downer of a book <laughs> where you just feel that you're just slogging through going, oh, misery, 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 misery. When does it ever get better? And so I was thinking, well, what do I tie it to? What's something that happened in that post-war period that's a contrast to the misery? And as soon as I thought of the royal wedding in 1947, I mean, there's really no greater contrast to ordinary everyday life than a royal wedding. So it was a case of then thinking, well, what will the specific connection be? So I had to stop and ask myself, well, what do people find interesting about royal weddings? you know, that gets people talking, that gets their attention, that people feel actually excited about. And quite often, it's what the bride wears. It's as simple as that. And so from there, it was a case of just learning about the gown itself and how it was made. And the minute I started digging into it and, and you know, reacquainted myself, I had a vague memory of what the dress looked like. When I saw the embroidery on it, I thought someone did that embroidery. And I didn't remember ever hearing any stories about the people who worked on the gown. And as soon as I started digging into it, that's where I would find my story because the people who did the work were ordinary people. They were ordinary women who had just lived through a terrible war and were trying to get back on their feet, same as everyone else. So speaking of Anne and Miriam, Courtney from our Facebook group asked, which characters did you enjoy writing the most? So that could be Anne or Miriam or, or Heather. I think it's a mix of both of the women in the past, Anne and Miriam. Anne feels more familiar in that she's very similar to relatives I have who are from Britain and, and are, are kind of of that generation. It was easy to write Anne. It just unspooled. Miriam was tough because with Miriam, I had to try and imagine the unimaginable the experience of losing her entire family, surviving the Holocaust. And I'm not really giving anything away. This becomes apparent fairly early in the book. And then what do you do with the rest of your life? How do you go on? Anne, too, has suffered great loss. And the question is, how do you go on when, when life has handed you just a bowl of pits, right? No cherries, just the pits. And what do you do? How do you get up the next day? So Miriam was the one that I found 
very challenging to write about. And also because she's French. And I've lived in France. Uh, I speak French fluently. I feel I know the country and its people reasonably well. She's a different kind of person. There's something about the French character that is so wonderful, but is distinctly not English. And it took a little bit of going back and forth for me to feel comfortable that I had Miriam in, you know, the little eccentricities that make up her character, that she was true to herself as I imagined her. So we have another question from our Facebook group. It was just the most wonderful thread, really. Joy wants to know, what interesting piece of history did you discover in your research for the gown that did not make it into the book? Oh, you know, to be honest, all the good stuff I did my best to put in there. It might not be necessarily clear the bits that are absolutely real and the bits that I may have fudged a little bit with the details. So there are things like the moment where the embroiderers put a few final stitches in the train of the wedding gown at the very end. I'm not giving anything away. I mean, they had to finish it. But the women who didn't work on it are invited to come in and put in a, a single stitch. And I've been asked a number of times from, by people, did that really happen? That doesn't feel like it could have happened, but it actually did happen. Wow. And that's something that Betty Foster, this wonderful lady who's the last surviving of the seamstresses, told me. And it was just a way to make everyone feel included. They'd all worked so hard. I mean, even if you weren't working on the wedding gown, you were working on something else. Mm-hmm. Queen Elizabeth herself, Queen Mary, all of their gowns were made by Mr. Hartnell. Designed, I should say, by Mr. Hartnell. But, you know, it's something to be able to go home and tell your family. And this is, mind you, after months of secrecy, of not being able to say a word. So to go home and tell your family, I did help make the princess's wedding gown. And you're telling, hand over heart, you're telling the truth. I thought that was really symbolic to me of the atmosphere at Hartnell's. People who, once they started working there, typically stayed for a long time. So speaking of the embroidery studio and how it all worked there. One of your readers on your Instagram had a question for you. Your reader, Carol, had the same question that I did. You described the very detailed and handworked beading so beautifully. How did you learn about all of these practices and skills? So it was as simple as learning how to do it myself. I went to a place called Hand and Lock in London, When I got in touch with him, it was with the specific plan of wanting to know how the embroidery, these finely detailed appliques were attached to the veil and the body of the gown and how they're embellished. And could I go uh, to Hand and Lock and have one of their embroiderers show me so that I could learn and do it myself? Because not only did I need to see it so I could describe it. But I also wanted to have that kind of muscle memory of sitting at a table and kind of working. I mean, as much as you try to hunch, you're going to end up hunching at the end of the day, I think. Or certainly I do because I have terrible eyesight. (laughs) But to work at this piece of embroidery for hours and hours. And what it feels like, do your eyes start to hurt? And they absolutely do. Do you get a little crick in your neck? Do you feel that you need to get up and stretch? All of those things. I needed mm. to get that sense of what it was like to be one of those women. So I went to Hand and Lock and I spent this long, long day working on this one piece of embroidery, this single uh, beaded star, or they called them star flowers in the design. And there's hundreds of them all over the gown and train. And I just recreated one of them. And that took me 10 solid hours of work. Now, I work a lot slower than a trained embroiderer. I think a a trained embroiderer, a, a really skilled embroiderer could do it in a quarter of the time. So it gave me a sense of how much labor was involved. 
you're listening to the Book Club Girl podcast, where our guest this week is Jennifer Robeson, whose book, The Gown, is out now. You can read more about Jennifer's book at bookclubgirl.com slash podcast. Coming up on the Book Club Girl podcast, Jennifer answers more questions. And later in the show, we ask about her literary white whale. So don't go anywhere. This episode of the Book Club Girl podcast is brought to you by Sex with Presidents by Eleanor Herman. In this fascinating work of popular history, the New York Times bestselling author of Sex with Kings uncovers the bedroom secrets of American presidents and explores the surprising ways voters have reacted to their leaders' sex scandals. Available wherever books are sold. Welcome back to the show. This episode, we're speaking with Jennifer Robeson, author of The Gown. You mentioned the attitude at this embroidery shop and the sort of the goodwill that was sort of practiced there within the management. And all of this was situated in post-war London. And like you discussed, everyone is, you know, using rations and things are really difficult to come by and there's no coal and things are really cold in the winter and all these hardships. And um, one of the members of our book club girls Facebook group posted about what her sort of favorite part of the book was. And so I wanted to ask, could you speak a little bit about how you portrayed these women taking control over their lives after such devastating events individually to them? Obviously, as you talked about, they had each gone through something really traumatic, but also sort of generally like in post-war London, it's really difficult. And these women are sort of taking control over their lives a little bit when there were such limited choices available to them. Quite often, uh, the two world wars are cited as times when women's freedoms dramatically increased and that, again, the choices available to them were kind of suddenly wide open. The sky's the limit in terms of what you can do with your life. You were expected to leave the home and work during the war. And these are all heartening things in terms of increasing the scope of women's freedoms and their lives. What Anne and Miriam are doing in this period, uh, being young working women, they have real skills. It's something that they, you know, justifiably could be proud of. What I found was that their skills were routinely downplayed or ignored or sidelined when there were discussions of anything relating to the world in which they worked. So, and if we go back to Hartnell, it was not hard to find out information about what Norman Hartnell was doing in the 30s, 40s, and 50s at all, not at all. What was almost impossible to find out was anything about the women who worked for him. They were invisible. And this happens, it's not just women, obviously, and we all, you know, this is what happens to anyone who is not, frankly, a Caucasian man. I wrote this book, and as I write all of my books, with the express intention of just throwing some light on the lives of people who would otherwise have been ignored. On your Instagram, you got a lot of questions, and this one woman, Lorraine, was wondering what the true dynamic was between the royals and the dressmakers and embroiderers who worked on the Queen's wedding gown. And in fact, they also worked on, as we said earlier, many of the gentry's finery for that event as well. Was there a dynamic between them or was there a wall? Typically, the royals weren't at Hartnell's, but that doesn't mean they didn't have contact uh, with the women. But there are a number of occasions where the queen, and when I say queen here, I'm talking about the queen mother, you know, the lovely lady we think of as the queen mom, where she was when 
the women at Hartnell had made one of her more important evening gowns, for example, that that would a lot of work would have gone into. Not quite the same amount of work as a wedding gown, but still, you know, a lot of long hours. She would invite them, a group of the women who'd worked on the gown, to the palace to see her wearing it and to have the kind the treat of going to the palace and and getting to meet her and see her in her gown and not just her gown but the jewelry and the fur and the queen came out and came along and talked to each one of them and thanked them for the work they'd done on the gown and Betty remembers who was very young at the time but she remembers how lovely the queen was they were just struck dumb at the sight of you're standing in front of the queen. You know, there was a distance, but the queen mum was also a really soft-hearted person. And she was very kind to people. And she did notice. Um, and for example, all the women who worked on the wedding gown were given little certificates from the queen. Betty's went astray many years ago, unfortunately. But that was something, you know, something that people would treasure. Um, Jen, there are so many fanatical readers of the gown, which we saw when we announced that we were going to have you on the podcast. <laughs> um, and I know they all have the same question that we do, which is what is coming next from you? What's your next book? So it's a departure. Uh, you know, it's set in Italy. It's also set during the war. And there aren't really the same links between previous books. Uh, this is really a standalone um, but it explores the story of, of what is it like to become a refugee in your own country. That's what happens to my heroine, who's a young Jewish woman from Venice and who's forced to take refuge uh, in the countryside with, with strangers. And I came to it by the unexpected discovery not so long ago that my husband's grandparents were among the, the minority of people who helped uh, shelter uh, Jewish refugees within Italy during the war, and that they were directed to do so by their parish priest, who was later named Righteous Among the Nations by Yad Vashem. And wow. as soon as that kind of came to, it just landed in my lap, it made me wonder. I had to ask myself, who were the people they sheltered? Uh, we have a few names, we don't really have many details. Mm -hmm. And so rather than tell the story of the family story to try and make it straight history, I skewed towards fiction again and created a cast of characters who are entirely fictional uh, with a few parallels with real life figures. But I wanted to know what it was like to grow up and live most of your life in, in you know, a country that's really the only place you belonged. And then to be told one day, you don't belong here. We don't want you. And then what do you do? And, and how does that affect you? And, and what is it like to try and survive? And so that's the story of Antonina. Okay, so one more question for you, Jen, and this is something we ask all of our guests. Okay. So what is your literary white whale? And that's a book that you either meant to read or one that you started reading but never finished. There are so many books in the canon of the books that we're supposed to have read that I haven't read, that I ought to have read. One that I perpetually feel ashamed of um, is the great kind of monumental work by German writer Thomas Mann. And it's called Buddenbrooks. And my father has said to me again and again that it's the greatest novel ever written and I must read it. And I've always put him off. I'll get around to it. And last year, he sent me a copy of it. It's on my shelf behind me right now and I still haven't read it. I mean, I mean to. I have the best of intentions, but I'm like a little magpie in the sense that the shiny thing in front of me is the thing that 
catches my attention. Our other guests have given some very interesting responses. And I think this is the third time that I haven't heard of the book before. Yeah. So to me, well, it's it's a new book. I've never heard of it. It's, you know, and the thing is, someday I'll get around to reading it. And I'm sure I'll say to myself, that was incredible. Where has this book been all my life? And I'll, I'll have no one to but myself to blame. Well, Jen, thank you so, so much for coming on the podcast. We had such a great time reading the gown so and talking much. to you about it. This was such a treat. Thank you. I had such a lovely time. It was, uh, it was a, a joy to talk with both of you. That was Jennifer Robeson, whose book, The Gown, is out now. To find out more about Jennifer's novel and her new book, Our Darkest Night, and how to buy your copies, head to bookclubgirl.com slash podcast, where you can also find links to everything mentioned in this episode. Like what you heard? Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, give us a rating and please leave a review. Another way to help spread the word about the Book Club Girl podcast, tell a friend. It really helps others to find out about us. You will hear from us again in two weeks when we'll be speaking with celebrated, award-winning poet Nikki Giovanni about her new collection, Make Me Rain. If you want to read the book before the podcast drops, head over to hc.com and use promo code BOOKCLUBGIRL, that's all one word, for 25% off and free shipping for any book discussed on the podcast. That's a good deal. I think it is. Please stay in touch with us between episodes. There may be more good deals that we could tell you about. We're both on Instagram. Find us on at Tavia Reads and at Eliza is Reading. And of course, at Book Club Girl. You can join in on our next conversation. We're going to be speaking with New York Times bestselling author Julia Quinn, author of the Bridgerton series. So if you have a question for Julia about her book, The Duke and I, or questions about the Netflix adaptation of her wildly popular series, you can email us thegirls at bookclubgirl.com or post in the comments on our Facebook group or leave us a voicemail. Our number is 212-207-7336. Before we go, a big thank you to Charles de Montebello who produced today's episode, to Jess Lyons for helping us to book today's interview, to Jennifer Robeson for resourcefully sorting out the tech necessary for a remote podcast, and to Jennifer's son, who let his mom use his gaming microphone for the recording session. Until next time, I'm Eliza. And I'm Tavia. Happy reading. August 18th, 1947. When Mr. Hartnell came through the door of the workroom at precisely nine o'clock that morning, Anne just knew. She and every other woman in the room had been waiting for this moment for more than a month. Everyone stood. A bubble of noise burst over the room. Chair legs scraping across the floor. Fugitive whispers pitched too loud. A volley of explosive sneezes from Ruthie, who always had the sniffles. And then silence. Even the ordinary sounds of traffic outside seemed to have dimmed. Mr. Hartnell smiled, his grin stretching quite as wide as a Cheshire cat's. I have some splendid news. The Queen and Princess Elizabeth have graciously accepted my design for the princess's wedding gown. I shall also be designing gowns for the Queen herself, Queen Mary, Princess Margaret Rose, and the princess's bridesmaids. They applauded politely, mindful they were at work and not the music hall. And then Miss Julie, standing next to Mr. Hartnell on the landing, cleared her throat. The formal announcement will be made later today. 
and I shall speak with all of you in due course. As Mr. Hartnell has said, we will have a hand in the gowns for the entire wedding party. I promise that no one will be left out. In the meantime, however, we have a great deal of work to complete. Back to your places, please, and save your chatter for break. Anne returned to the frame she'd been sharing with Miriam since the previous week. They'd been working on the bodice of the wedding gown for some society bride. A familiar mix of Alençon lace, dozens of sequins to catch the light, and just enough crystal beads and seed pearls to provide some texture. It did rather feel like something the bride's grandmother might have worn at the turn of the century, but it wasn't Anne's place to question or critique. When finished, the gown would be very beautiful. The bride's father would be poorer by several hundred guineas, and everyone who attended the wedding would agree that Mr. Hartnell had triumphed again. Anne had only just shuffled her chair into the perfect spot when a shadow fell over her. She looked up to discover Mr. Hartnell and Miss Julie standing mere inches away. I beg your pardon, she said, and stood again. Miriam had been fetching some thread, but returned to wait at Anne's elbow. You remember Miss Hughes and Miss Dasson, Miss Julie said. Yes, of course, Mr. Hartnell answered. Good morning to you both. Good morning, sir, Anne said. Congratulations. It really is splendid news. It is, isn't it? I've come to tell you that Miss Julie has recommended you both for the samples we'll be sending to Her Majesty and the Princess. What say you to that? She did her very best to look surprised. Thank you ever so much. I'm honored, sir, truly honored. She looked to Miriam, who seemed more taken aback than anything else, and tilted her head fractionally. Say something, she implored silently. Yes, of course. Thank you. I am very grateful to be chosen, Miriam added promptly. <laughs>